And we will begin reading with verse 11. Isaiah 54, verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression for you will not fear and from terror for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn." This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, your scriptures. We pray that you would apply them to our hearts and help us to walk in them, in your truth. We ask for the Spirit of Truth, your Holy Spirit, to minister to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to share some thoughts with you this morning on the future glory of God's people. The future glory of God's people. And I will actually be dealing primarily with verse 11. But if we're going to understand that verse or this section, or really the book of Isaiah, um, we need to understand its historical setting. And I'll give you this information because it'll be helpful to you to understand the whole book uh, when you're reading it. Uh, some of what I'll have to say here is in terms of the introduction will be uh, profitable for any uh, understanding of, of the book of Isaiah. First of all, Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. You remember after the time of David and Solomon, the, the kingdom was divided uh, amongst uh, some of David's sons. And that took place around 933 B.C. Uh, there was a northern kingdom which was called Israel, that had the ten tribes, and its capital was in Samaria. And then the southern kingdom, uh, which was called Judah, and its capital was in Jerusalem. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom at around of just a rough date of 700 B.C. That's just an easy way to remember. Isaiah 700 B.C. 
And his name means the Lord is salvation. So you know what his message is going to be. His message is his name. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, the, the, when the kingdoms divided, the northern kingdom was ruled over almost consistently by ungodly uh, kings and leaders. So it lasted about 200 years, um, and then it was taken captive by Assyria in 723 B.C. Now, I know you won't keep all these straight, but just kind of get a little rough idea here. The northern kingdom taken captive by Assyria in 723 B.C. The southern kingdom, I think, primarily because it had a number of godly kings, lasted longer. It lasted about 100 years longer than that, but eventually, because of sin and unfaithfulness to God, it was taken captive by the Babylonians, and that's approximately 600 B.C. So you see, if Isaiah's prophesying in 700 and 100 years later in 600 B.C., uh, the southern kingdom is taken captive. If he says anything related to that captivity, he's saying it a hundred years ahead of time. Uh, he was prophesying. Much of the book has to do with the prophesying of coming judgment uh, upon the people there in the southern kingdom. And he was saying that about a hundred years before it took place. But he also talks about the restoration of those people who were going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. There would be a faithful remnant that would be brought back to the land, uh, return to the land, reestablish the nation, rebuild. This happened 70 years after they were taken captive, after the southern, southern kingdom was taken captive. Um, about 70 years later, they were returned to the land of Judah, and that began around 534 B.C. That's when the Persians overtook the Babylonians and let the Jewish people that were in Babylon return back to their land. That was uh, under Cyrus, the Persian king. But again, all this, all that was future to Isaiah the prophet. So he prophesied... Uh, around 700, in and around Jerusalem. And his prophecy, his time of his ministry, lasted about 50 or 60 years. So there was a number of kings of, of Judah that he outlasted. He, there was like four of them, actually, that uh, he was a prophet during their time. So what we have in this book is various prophecies and revelations given by Isaiah, but they were given to him by God, and they concerned the present situation, the near future, what was going to happen fairly soon, and then the distant future. Now, you have to keep that in mind when you're reading the book of Isaiah. They, some, of, some of it deals with the present situation, some of it deals with the near future, and some of it deals with the distant future. And that can get a little bit confusing sometimes. And I, I want to uh, put a diagram up here that um, some Bible teachers talk about that helps us understand uh, how we should view the book of Isaiah. 
It's called prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective. Some of you may not be able to. Can I get to yeah, uh, May not be able to see that too well. But what this is supposed to look a little like is a mountain range with mountain peaks one after the other. You see, this would be the first one, the next, the next. And the idea there is that um, if you look at a mountain range from a distance, the peaks in the range may look like they're all pretty close together and really almost part of one another. But as you get closer, you realize these things are far apart. I remember one time uh, my brother and I went out to the the Tetons and uh, we camped kind of below the mountains and I said, well, let's climb that one. And so my brother went to excited about this, but we did it. But the problem was, it took us about a half a day to get to the mountain. I thought we'd just start climbing. It looked like it was right there. But these things are so huge, just to get to the base of the mountain took us about a half a day, so we didn't make it very far up the mountain. (laughs) Anyway, the point is, is that uh, this teaches us something about how we should view the book of Isaiah. It's helpful in our understanding of the book and especially this section we're going to look at today. Uh, there, in the book of Isaiah, there's often a merging of events. For instance, the captivity that we talked about and the restoration of the Jewish people. Some of what Isaiah uh, saw, what God revealed to him, had to do with, with that the captivity and the restoration. But some of what he saw actually has to do, uh, had to do with the first coming of Christ. In fact, there's more in the book of Isaiah about the Messiah than any other Old Testament book. Maybe, maybe the Psalms has more. I, I think that's true, though, that there's more, uh, at least quoted in the New Testament, from the book of Isaiah. So there's lo- a lot there about the first coming of Christ when the Messiah would come. But also, some of the revelation that was given to Isaiah um, concerns the second coming of Christ. And the thing is, a lot of times they're all right together in just a few verses. Um, Just like those mountain ranges, for Isaiah, those things looked like they were just really close together. Um, So again, that's called prophetic perspective, things thousands of years apart stated as if almost happening at the same time. Um, Now, we have a clearer perspective uh, living as we do. We live, you see, we're right between this mountain range and that mountain range, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So we have a little clearer perspective on how things uh, break down and uh, when they are uh, uh, took place. Uh, but even in our position now, sometimes it's hard to say for sure uh, when we read through the book of Isaiah what deals with 
what deals with the Babylonian captivity and the restoration, what deals with the first coming of Christ, and what deals with the second coming. Uh, it's partly because uh, things commenced at the first coming will be consummated at the second coming, and what began at the first coming 2,000 years ago will be completed at the second coming yet in the future for us, and it's hard to make, sometimes it's hard to see as you read through the book um, just where those things fit. But we have to keep that in mind, that, that Isaiah is viewing things from the distant, like uh, a person viewing a mountain range, and those things, various uh, truths related to the history there are sometimes looked like they are stated all at once, and actually they're, they're very far apart. So that's, that's what's called prophetic perspective. So that's all said so that we can look at this section of Isaiah that we read to begin with. And really, I'm going to spend most of the time on verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundation I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal, and your entire wall of precious stones. Though God's people, and you might say Jerusalem as a city and God's people in general, would be afflicted and storm-tossed, in the future she would be restored to splendor. That's what this little couplet here, this little section we're looking at in general means, the restoration, a restoring of the splendor. Her foundations, her battlements, her gates, her walls would be made of precious stones. These various stones represent strength and beauty and something that's enduring. That's what they were symbolic of. We're not to think that God was saying, you know, when Jerusalem's rebuilt, it's actually going to have um, gates made of crystal and, and uh, foundations made of sapphires. He's, it's a symbolic representation here of beauty and strength and endurance. So what this is saying, what the scripture is saying, that though presently distressed and afflicted, God will yet do great things for his people. Though Jerusalem would soon be laid in ruins, and that's what was going to happen here in just a few years, about a hundred years after Isaiah was saying these things, uh, Isaiah, uh, Jerusalem would be overran and made to uh, be in subjection and torn down the temple and walls, there would be yet a restoration and it would even be to a greater splendor than ever, built with glistening stones. Now I want to say something about these stones. Antimony, a bright, I looked these up, a bright silvery white metallic-like stone, um, and this uh, from the scripture, and sometimes 
If you're reading a different translation, you may have a, a different stone mentioned here because they're not exactly sure. Some of these stones uh, looked quite a bit alike and the names were, were uh, interchangeable, so um, you might have a little different translation of a, a, a word for a stone here. But it was a beautiful material, and it says that it would be used for mortar, which would set off the great beauty of the stones composing the walls. See? It says, uh, I will set your stones in antimony. So it itself is, is beautiful, and it's used as a mortar to set these other stones in. So that's, that's the first one. <clears throat> the second one, sapphires. A gem quality stone of translucent crystals, second only to diamonds in hardness often blue but can be clear or light pink, yellow, orange, brown, or green. Only the red sapphire has a special name. Its name, it's named a ruby. So uh, that's the next uh, rock or stone that's mentioned here. So a red sapphire is a special note and it's called a ruby. Uh, Really fine rubies are so rare that they are worth more carat for carat than a diamond. We speak of something as being ruby red. That's because that's the characteristic color of a ruby. Uh, so the ruby, a extremely valuable uh, stone, precious stone. And then lastly, the crystal mentioned your gates of crystal. <clears throat> to the people of biblical times, crystal meant clear quartz. That's when it says crystal, it's clear quartz. Uh, it, has a re it's, it forms a crystal that has a regular six sides and a sharply pointed tip. That's what the crystal of quartz looks like. Uh, and let me just read a little bit about the crystal here. Uh, it is a widely occurring mineral. Quartz crystals have become valuable in the world because of several important characteristics. Quartz has a hardness of seven in the mineral scale, harder than steel. It is quite tough. Um, it is quite tough under impact since it does not cleave. It resists acid, cannot oxidize, and withstands atmospheric weathering. So that would be a pretty good thing to make a gate from, you see. Uh, you're not going to break that one down. Now, uh, these others, antimony and sapphires and rubies, I don't have examples of. I like to collect rocks. I have a pretty big rock collection. I don't have those. But I do have quartz crystal. So I wanted to show that to you. I usually keep this back in my office. This is a, a quartz crystal, and if you look at these various crystals here, you see they have six sides and they come to a point. And there's, a lot, there's big ones and little ones in here. It's really uh, quite a, a beautiful stone. So I'm going to leave that right there, because we're going to be talking about that some. Uh, I might just tell you a little about the background of that one. Because uh, 
quite a few years ago, the family was in Oklahoma, and uh, we were staying there at a at kind of a uh, uh, motel resort area, and we found out that there was a man who sold these, but you didn't buy them right from him. What what you did was you paid him some money, and he took you out to where he digs them up, and he digs with a backhoe, and you pick them out of the ground because he knew where they were. So he would he'd charge like twenty five dollars for your family. And it was kind of fun for the kids. Now my young kids don't even remember this. It was so long ago. But it was, you know, it was kind of a fun thing to do. He'd take you out, out, way out in the woods, and here was this big hole in the ground that he dug with a backhoe, and in the midst of this mud and dirt were these things. You had to search for them and pick them out. And they, when you found them, they didn't look so hot because they were covered with mud and, and dirt. So it took time and effort to find them and then clean them up. Uh, now, let me just say here right, right now that I have a lot of these. Not as big as this one, but uh, I have a whole box of them here. And if any of you children want a quartz crystal, just come to my office after the meeting and you can have one. I, I'd be glad to... To give you one, or and if anybody else wants one, I got a lot of them. <clears throat> uh, so, the point of all this about these various uh, gems and rocks is that God promises future glory, splendor, and strength to His storm-tossed and afflicted people. So the next question then would be, when is that going to be the case? Uh, when was he speaking of? Well, like we've already said here, when Isaiah prophesies these things, there's a merging of, of time periods here. So partly this meant that people would that had been taken captive and that was still in the future. They hadn't even been taken captive yet. And he's already telling them, when that happens, realize God's going to restore you to the land. You rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and again prosper. But further along and of far more importance, this reference has to do with the New Testament church what God was going to do in Christ by sending his son to live and die and be resurrected and establish his church here on the earth. Uh, so, what we're reading here is for us, right? I mean, that's what we are. We're part of the New Testament church. Uh, the people that are living between the first and second coming of Christ. So it has to do with that. And I just want to say a little bit here. Uh, when we think of the church today, uh, this is not the way the world views the church. Um, they don't see it as beautiful and glorious and strong and resilient. 
And the fact is that even as Christians, we seem to fall short of what this verse says. Uh, I mean, look around the room. Uh, the church often seems to be in a precarious state, seeking to survive in a hostile environment. As we look around at the church around the world, and even in our own local situation here, we often see sorrow and oppression misunderstanding, failure, and even sin. If we look just even at our own lives, you know, personally take a look, uh, we see much yet that is lacking in strength and beauty. But God says this is to be true of his people. What we read here in verse 11 and 12. So that leads us to that last mountain peak. Well, I think that much of this section is being fulfilled in the church age right now by God's people and in God's people. The ultimate fulfillment will be when Christ comes again. So what, what we're seeing here in verse 11 and 12 is Isaiah speaking not only of the return of God's people from Babylon, not only of the coming of Christ and the establishment of the church, but he was seeing far off, far off even into our future yet, uh, to the glory of God's people at the end of the age when Christ comes again, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, let me just say that there's good reasons to realize that this has to do with us right now, the church age. For instance, if you go back, uh, we didn't read... So, uh, this beginning of the chapter, but verse 1 of chapter 54, where Isaiah says, For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. That's quoted in the New Testament by Paul as referring to the New Testament church. Okay? Another reason that we know it applies to the New Testament church is in verse 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. Jesus quotes that as referring to his people in the time of what he was going to do in establishing the church. He said, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. That's true. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian. You're taught of the Lord. And everybody that's a Christian has been taught of the Lord. So there's good reason to see that this applies to the New Testament church. But there's also good reason to realize that what, what Isaiah was seeing often in the, in the book of Isaiah had to do with the second coming of Christ, things yet future to us. Um, 
Let's turn to 1 Peter here quickly, just to get a little feel for this. 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 13, but according to his promise, that is God's promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. But he says, according to his promise, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. Where was that promise? Well, that promise was in the book of Isaiah. When, when Peter quotes uh, this promise, when he says there's a promise from God about a new heaven and a new earth, he was thinking about the book of Isaiah. Let's turn, for instance, to Isaiah 65. All I'm doing now is establishing that Isaiah, in his vision, uh, his revelation, his prophecy, uh, sometimes spoke of the second coming of Christ, yet future to us. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And then if you would just turn over to chapter 66, verse 22, just this one verse. For just as the new heavens and new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. So there's the endurance. But the point is, is that Isaiah sometimes was speaking of reestablishing Jerusalem after the captivity. Sometimes he was speaking of us as the, the New Testament church, the, the time between the first and second coming, and sometimes he was speaking of Christ's second coming. Now, when you read in the book of Revelation, you have presented some of what Isaiah thaw, saw thousands of years before. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, where you see this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, uh, as he describes it, and again, I don't think Isaiah had really much of an understanding of what he was saying when he, even when he wrote these verses about your battlements being of rubies and your gates of crystal and things like that. But nevertheless, when we come to the picture that God gives us of the, uh, the second coming and what God's going to establish, the new heavens and the new earth, it says this, we don't, you don't need to look it up, but Revelation 21, 19, the foundation stones of the city wall were, were adorned with every kind of precious stone. See, he's describing there uh, what it's like, and, he's, and he says the foundation stones 
of the city will be adorned with every kind of precious stone. And this is what Isaiah has told us here thousands of years before. What we're talking about then is the amazing, amazing uh, future glory of God's people in its various manifestations. In the time not too long after Isaiah, in the time of Christ, in the church, in the time of the Lord's second coming. Uh, God is doing and will do things beyond our wildest imagination with his people. Again, you may not seem to see very much of that right now. The world ridicules and seeks to ruin the church, but God says he's in the process of making it beautiful and strong and enduring. It goes for us as a congregation. It goes for us as individuals. It goes for the church, God's people in general. Beautiful, strong, and enduring. And we shouldn't just think in terms of that applying to that last mountain peak. Because even now, when we see God's people worshiping in his spirit, glorying in Christ Jesus, and making no provision for the flesh, you see something of the beauty and strength of the people of God. When you see people of different nationalities nationalities and different personalities serving one another and loving one another, you see something of the beauty and strength of God's people. When you see a person in humility of mind regarding another person that's more important than themselves, you see something of the beauty and strength of God's people. When you see a person more and more turning from sin and pursuing righteousness, you see something of the beauty and strength of God's people. When you see people forgiving one another from the heart, you see something of the beauty and strength of God's people. When you see people hearing and heeding the word of God, you see something of God's, of the beauty that God has put upon his people and something of the strength that's there. When you see people becoming more Christ-like, you see something of this beauty and strength. But again, complete conformity to Christ awaits the coming of Christ again. Then God's people will become such as we cannot imagine now. That's why God had to use symbolic pictures here to try to get it across. We can't even imagine what we will be like and other Christians will be like because we shall be like him, we're told. His glory is our future. 
that Christian that the world looks down on now, and even other Christians may not hold in very high esteem, will become a person which, if you saw him right now, you would be tempted to worship. Think about that. That person sitting next to you, if that person's a Christian. will be a shining display of everlasting beauty and strength and the glory of God and the grace of God. A glistening, brilliant gemstone. We can't imagine what it's going to be like, what God's going to do for us. Yet, the future glory of the people of God. Well, much of that is unnoticed right now. It's, I, I almost think it's like these sapphires. Your foundations will be laid in sapphires. The foundations are usually underground. You don't even see them. That's the way a lot of what God is doing amongst his people is right now. It's kind of out of sight. You don't, you don't appreciate the beauty and and the glory of it. Uh, But those hidden sapphires will shine and glisten when brought to light. And I might use this picture also since I told you about how I got this quartz. When God gets the dirt cleaned off is when you see what he's done. Uh, his quartz crystal will be seen as beautiful and strong and enduring. Really, that's uh, one of the reasons I keep this in my office. It's good to remember. Uh, what God's going to do for us. I mean, sometimes I deal with some difficult situations back in that office, but it's good to remember this is this is the end product. The dirt gets cleaned off. Well, uh, again, I, uh, that's all I've got to say. If you children would like uh, some of this quartz crystal, uh, just come to the office. You know, you might want to put it on a little shelf or put it away in a drawer somewhere. And then when you look at it, remember, this is what God's going to do for his people. Bright, shining, beautiful, strong, enduring. I mean, again, if we look around, we don't see some of that yet, but it's good to remember. So maybe it'll be a a reminder uh, to you of God's plan for his people. Well, um, let's close with uh, that song on 682. 
the church is one foundation. Six eighty two in the redemption.